All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, and David Platt would say, and I hope you do. Sorry, I have to joke. <laughs> um, if you have them, open to Colossians chapter 2. And we'll be studying the whole chapter tonight, which when we first started talking about revival, we thought was a really good idea. We'll just take a book that has four chapters, four nights, four guys, a chapter a night. Whew. It's proven to be a difficult task because Colossians is packed full of really good stuff. I'll give you my main idea from the get-go. You have my outline, and it also has the main idea on it. Um, but I'll give you that because... I think it helps maybe to steer us the rest of the way. Um, Colossians chapter 2, uh, my point tonight, we'll have three points, but all kind of getting at this main idea that if everything we read about Christ in chapter 1, especially in, in verses 13 through 19, that Christ hymn, that exalting moment in Colossians 1 where Paul just all over the page tells you how great Christ is and what he's done for you. If all of that is true in chapter 1, then being in Christ, as believers, as Christians, being in Christ has radical implications for every area of our lives. Um, being in Christ has to mean something. There has to be consequences of being in Christ if what Paul said of Christ is true in chapter 1. So uh, I'm going to at least attempt to walk us through and show us three um, areas tonight uh, where that truth has bearing on our lives. Uh, number one, you see in your outline... Uh, we see that our absolute fullness is in Christ. Our absolute fullness is in Christ. There are a lot of things in this world that will promise fullness, that will promise a great return if you'll invest uh, your time, your money, your efforts. Our fullness, though, what it means to be living, uh, living out the life that God's called us to, living in the will of God, will bring absolute fullness. Uh, verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul here starting us off in the second chapter um, saying, hey, guys, remember all of that that I said earlier about, about working so that you can all be, so that the church can be presented to God fully mature. This is where uh, Pastor Michael ended last night uh, in our, our third idea of working. This idea of, of striving, one another, one another pushing, uh, us as a congregation, as a church, pushing so that one another will be presented fully mature in Christ. Paul says, I want to unpack that a little bit more and show you what that looks like. Uh, boots on the ground, what that looks like in motion, what that looks like in real life. And so I'm going to tell you some more, Paul says, about what that means. Here's what it looks like. Hearts being encouraged, being knit together in love, a unity that's unbreakable. Um, to, to the, the riches of full assurance, Paul says. These are some, some ideas that Paul's getting at in verses 1 and 2. And, but I think it begs the question, as, as Paul just kind of, kind of spills these goals out there for us in the Christian life, how does that happen, Paul? How does, how does full assurance come about, Paul? How are we to arrive at that? The answer, I think Paul would point us to, is what he's going to walk us through in these next few verses. But it's the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, who is Christ. 
This idea of mystery, I think we so often think of our, uh, you know, Matlock, our favorite uh, crime show that we're, we're, we're watching the whole 50-minute episode, and we're working towards dis- discovering this mystery, or mystery novels, where it, it's hidden, it's something hidden until the very end. And in a sense, that's what we're talking about if we were Old Testament believers. If we were Old Testament followers of Yahweh, it is an incredible mystery. How is God going to redeem a sinful people and, and them not go back into sin after we see over and over and over in the Old Testament? But in the New Testament, and for us, that mystery has been revealed. And that mystery, God's mystery, is Christ. He is that answer. It's kind of like having an aha moment. Have you ever had an aha moment? You even know what I'm talking about when I say an aha moment? Where something was revealed to you, you received some sort of understanding or knowledge, and then from that point forward, everything concerning that, that, that thing made sense. It just sort of clicked and made sense. I, um, I had an aha moment about seven, eight, ten years old. I don't know. I'm terrible with numbers and age, but uh, learning how to drive a stick shift truck, straight drive. Uh, Daddy, was, Daddy was teaching me and had me out in the, the, the cow pasture. And uh, my daddy, y'all have met my daddy, and he got an opportunity to preach here. And uh, many of you might not realize this from him because he's kind of got soft in his older age, but uh, he's kind of patient and, you know, he's kind of a sweet guy. But then, at least my memory of this event, he was not patient and uh, was very aggravated and firm with me in the field that day. And, uh, you know, that, that whole thing where you learn to drive a stick shift and you've got the jumps going on, it's kind of <laughs> jumping like this. I kept jumping it, and uh, Daddy just looks up, son, I've told you, you got to ease out on the clutch and let in on the gas, and, and he's going off and on. And so finally I just said, Daddy, uh, would it be okay if, if, uh, if, if I just stay right here in the field, you mind going back to the house <laughs> and just let me have a little bit of time, and I think I'll figure this thing out. And I think he was aggravated enough at that moment that he thought that was a pretty good idea too. And so he went back up to the house. And I stayed right there in the field. And what I come to find out was that that clutch had a sweet spot about halfway down. That had a sweet spot. And you didn't have to mash the clutch all the way to the floor. And then when you shifted and let out of the clutch, you didn't have to come all the way back up to the full, you know, to let off. If you found that sweet spot, as soon as you hit that sweet spot, you could shift. And you let off. And you go to the next gear and you could shift. It just made perfect sense. It was that aha moment. You find that sweet spot in the clutch. And it all just goes smoothly. Daddy looks out there in 15 or 20 minutes. I'm just making circles around the pasture and everything's smooth. It's that aha moment. And I think this is essentially what Paul's saying in the, in the, in the first part of chapter 2. Knowledge of Christ, knowing who he is, understanding who he is and what he's done for you. It's that aha moment that produces these effects. Encouraged hearts, love and unity among believers, full assurance of your salvation and who you are in Christ. But Paul continues. Paul has this, this habit of, of run-on sentences. I know this drives probably English teachers crazy, but God inspired it in the scriptures, so that was always my excuse in English and grammar class. If, if scripture does it, Paul does it, seems like it would be okay. Paul has this run-on sentence, and so uh, we need to remember, keep going back to what he's reminding us of. He's, he's reminding us of Christ and what knowledge of Christ, understanding of Christ produces. So you go on in verse 3. Uh, knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
Paul's saying, I, I want to give you knowledge of Christ. I want to instruct you on who he is. I want you to have understanding of who he is and show you who he truly is so that when those come along that would desire to deceive you and work toward pulling you in the opposite direction with a false gospel, with false teaching, you'll see that stuff. It won't lead you astray. You won't be deceived by falsehood that seems true. Some of it may even sound like gospel to you. Some of it may even sound like what the apostles are proclaiming. But don't let it deceive you. Well, do you think that's still a problem for us as believers today? Do you think we might still have a problem with, with people filling pulpits that sound a whole? It sounds good. And it sounds, it sounds like it could be even biblical. Absolutely, yes. And so Paul... What do we need to do? What, do we, what truth do we need to walk in? What knowledge of Christ do we need to have so we're not deceived by false teachers? I think Paul would say, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked, church at Colossae. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You have received Christ, Paul says. We have delivered Christ to you, the message of the gospel. Walk in him. Don't depart from it. Don't deviate from what you've been given from us regarding Christ and the gospel. This will have several characteristics. Now remember, we're still kind of under point number one, what it looks like to have absolute fullness in Christ, what it means to be completely full and, and, and what that looks like in Christ. So three things, though, that, that, that we'll do that will characterize our lives and will embody having fullness in Christ. I gave them there in your outline. We won't spend much time on each one of them because there's a lot more text to cover tonight. Uh, but number one, be rooted and built up in him. Be rooted. Be firmly rooted. Know the truth of the scriptures. Know the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Rehearse it to one another and be built up in it. Don't let it be just something that you assume. I think we do this so often in the church. We assume, well, yeah, people know the gospel. We can, we can allow church folks to join Poplar Spring Baptist Church. They said they've been in church their entire lives. We don't have to ask them if they know the gospel and understand it. We can't assume the gospel. Be rooted in it. Uh, number two, be established in the faith. Have a foundation. Have an establishment of the doctrines of what we believe as the church and, and, and be established in that. Number three, abound in thanksgiving, Paul says. Abound in thanksgiving. Now you see it in verse seven. And I'm not going to elaborate much there because I'm certain Jesse's going to hit this full stride tomorrow night. Uh, abounding in thanksgiving. These are three, three things that you should do or that should be characteristic of you being in Christ and being full in Christ. Now, one thing that you don't do. So three things you do and one thing you don't do. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive. Stand firm. Resist philosophies that will be coming to the church that will try to twist you and turn you from the truth. Empty deceit. Don't be, don't be deceived by that stuff. Human traditions that would want to lure you away from what God's uh, taught you in the gospel. Resist elemental spirits of the world. Things that seem to have power, but there's none there in actuality. And then to cap it all off, Paul comes full circle back to this central idea, this idea that we've started it all with. Want to know what fullness is? You want to know why you don't need this other junk of, of philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition and elemental spirits of the world? You want to know why you don't need to fool with that stuff? Verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head 
of all rule and authority. You want to know why he can bring fullness? You want to know why tonight, no matter what else we would put our identity in, no matter what else we would claim to be, if our identity is not in Christ, we're not full, we're not going to be complete. The only reason he can bring fullness and completeness is because the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. And this is going back to what Michael taught us last night in that beautiful hymn by Paul. When you look into the face of Jesus, you are looking into the face of God himself. And here's the incredible truth. That same one, God himself, human person, fully God, fully man, gave his life for you. He purchased you with his own blood, and now he dwells in you. The fullness of God dwelt in him, and you have been filled in him. That's how you can know you're absolutely full. Absolute fullness in Christ. Number two. Number two, our total forgiveness in Christ. Our total forgiveness is in Christ. Verses 11 through 15. Paul has something very specific in mind as he writes these next few verses. And I want to give us that, that image, that historical picture, because I think before even reading our text, it helps to set the tone for our text. It helps us to have in mind uh, what Paul's thinking as he's writing. Because it's, it's something very specific and something that we, we would maybe even pass over uh, because it, it's, it's something we don't do in our world, in our day and age. Uh, at least in America that I can imagine or that I can remember. When Paul writes this next section, he's picturing a, a triumphal procession, right? Uh, through the streets of a major city, uh, in particular Rome, the celebration of a, of a military victory. A general has went off and conquered uh, another, another army, perhaps another country. And as they return, uh, they're, they're, they have a parade and they... Um, they have these processionals and the conquered rulers, the, the conquered king, the conquered generals, the conquered soldiers would be paraded down the streets of Rome and the whole city would come and gather and see this and it would be shame and it would be mockery upon the, the conquered individuals, especially the conquered king who thought he was big enough and bad enough to go up against Rome. The historian Plutarch uh, gives us a vivid picture of one of these events and so I want to I want to bring us back to that event because I think it helps in thinking through what Paul's writing about here. Plutarch writes uh, that this was a three-day event. And in this, this particular one that Plutarch's describing, it's given in, in honor and remembering and celebrating the, the victory of the Roman general uh, Paulus upon his arrival from capturing Macedonia. So Paulus goes off and he fights Macedonia and he, he conquers them in a, in a terrible way. And Plutarch writes that great scaffolds were built along the streets uh, all the way through Rome's major streets so that spectators could climb those scaffoldings and see over into the streets and, and watch the spectacle as it, as it took place. And Plutarch says that all of Rome turned out for this event uh, and, and wore white festive attire. I mean, it was a celebration for them. And it was a three-day event. On day one, 259 chariots displayed statues and pictures and other bounty uh, that was taken from the conquered enemy in Macedonia. Day two... Uh, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. These wagons came uh, through the streets, uh, show, just piled with armor that they had taken from Macedonia, followed by 3,000 people carrying the enemy's silver in 750 vessels. Day three, the captives, the ones that were fighting against Rome, were taken and led into the city with 120 sacrificial oxen. These oxen and their horns were covered with metal and ribbons and garland as they were decorated. 
Next, the Macedonians' gold were paraded down the streets of Rome as they conquered them and, and took their precious metals. Uh, then came the captured king's chariot, his own personal chariot, as you can imagine, adorned with all of the, the gold and silver that he would have had on it, his crown on top of the chariot and all his armor piled on it. And then the king's servants came, his personal servants that attended to his family, and they would be brought down these streets with with all the people of Rome shouting at them, and they're, they're weeping with outstretched hands, begging for the, the mercy to be shown, begging the crowds to show them mercy. And then next, the king's children came, followed by his personal servants, the king's own children, the princes and the princesses of the kingdom of Macedonia came, paraded through the street, weeping and crying for their parents, crying for mercy. Um, and then finally, after the king's children, King Perseus himself was paraded down the streets, watching his family in front of him, being mocked and shamed. He's clothed entirely in black, followed by an endless stream of prisoners that have been captured in war. And then after the king is made to, to march in humility and in shame, at the very end, at the very end of this three-day parade and processional, the very last person in the processional was the victorious general. The victorious general that had brought Rome this victory, secured their empire, I'll read you Plutarch's description of that moment. Seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all of the army, in like manner, with bows of laurel in their hand, bows of laurel, I guess, in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander. And as they followed their general, as they had into war, they sang songs and verses and choruses that usually accompanied their military conquests. Songs of triumph and praise of their general's great deeds. I think it's this picture. This is the time Paul was living in. I think it's this picture that Paul has in mind as he writes this next section. And you can imagine if you're a Roman person and your country's just went off to war, will our empire be captured? Will Macedonia actually be able to stand up to our country, our, our nation, our empire? been victorious and were mocking and shaming them for even thinking they could do it paul in verse 11 in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of christ you have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Now here it is. Here's where Paul's seeing that connection to a military conquest and processional victory parade in Rome. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. By triumphing over them in him. That's in Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. In the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father achieved the greatest victory over evil in this entire world that it's ever known or that it ever will know. And he put them, verse 15, to open shame. Full and total forgiveness has come. And this is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Though you were dead in your trespasses, Paul says, God made you alive. People want to talk about, wonder, and debate about our part, our role, what we contribute in salvation. Look at the way Paul describes it in verse 13. He says, you are D-E-A-D, -E dead. 
Uh, at the risk of insulting our intelligence tonight, let me ask you a very fundamental question. What do dead people do? Absolutely nothing. They're dead. There's, there's no life in them. There's no energy in them. There's no movement, no thought, no emotion, no feeling. They're deceased. And yet in verse 13, God, it says that God made you alive. He took initiative. He took action and made you alive. So what part did we play in our salvation? What did we do? Nada. Nothing. Zilch. The only thing we contributed here in this whole scheme, this whole plan of God, the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that we needed saving from. He accomplished it. That's why Paul describes it in this way in verse 15. It's this victory march of God that he's taken the, the, the things of this world, Satan and his powers, and he's triumphed over them. He's put them to shame. Christ is the victorious general at the very end of this processional, at the very end of history and time. He's the one that will follow all things victoriously. And God the Father is the reigning king, the one that has put to shame the powers of this world in his general, in Christ Jesus. And Paul wants us to see that those, though these things still exist, though sin and, and deceptive false teachings, though Satan and his demonic powers, though they still exist in a fallen world, they are defeated. They're done. He's triumphed over them in Christ. Satan's demons have been sentenced to a, a train of God's victory parade. They're those defeated prisoners walking, begging for mercy at the end of human history. The sin you struggle with, the temporary temptations that you'll deal with tomorrow and struggle with in life, they're just pieces of captured silver and gold that our victorious king has taken captive, that he's triumphed over. Satan himself will be made to march in shame in black robes of insult before the shouting, rejoicing multitudes of people, before the citizens of heaven that have overcome by the blood of Christ. Those things have no power over you. They've been totally and completely forgiven in Christ. He is the reigning king. He's the victorious general that's accomplished our salvation, our complete freedom. This is really good news for those of us that are in Christ. Number three, we see our complete freedom in Christ. We see our complete freedom in Christ. Not only absolute fullness, not only total forgiveness, but we see complete freedom in Christ. Look at verses 16 through 23. Many of you know uh, Mitchell and Dustin Shoemaker, who uh, were with us for Harvest Day. They adopted four kids from Poland. I know nothing about Poland, uh, but just in, in their connection with that country, uh, I've perked up when I've heard about things in Poland or in history, uh, Polis, uh, Poland's history. And so I was reading a little bit, an interesting story the other day in Poland's history and uh, I thought it tied nicely to this section of our text. Uh, the ancient city of uh, Krakow, I guess is how you say that, K-R-A-K-O-W, Krakow, Krakow, that's the name of the city. So in the ancient city of Krakow, Poland, um, uh, in, in Krakow, Poland, this ancient city has a, has a, has a church, a massive church, St. Mary's Church, on one side of the city. And along that church, there's these spires and these steeples that go up into the sky, uh, a long, long way. And the greatest of these steeples has a, a bugle, a horn attached to it. And that horn has been sounded every day for the last 700 years. That's cool in itself. I mean, if you think about how long that's been, that's almost triple the length of time that we've been a nation in America. That every day for 700 years, this bugle has sounded. That's pretty neat. But here's what's really fascinating about that. The last note in the chorus that that bugle plays is always muted or broken. It's purposefully played wrong 
as if some disaster has come and the bugler, the person playing the horn, has been taken out in the midst of play. It just kind of abruptly ends. The 700-year tradition is in memory of a heroic trumpeter who one night summoned the people of Poland to defend their city against the, the hordes of an invading army. The trumpeter sounded the warning call, uh, notifying the city that, that they were under attack, under siege, and then suddenly one of the enemy soldiers gets to the trumpeter and pierces his heart with an arrow. He dies immediately, and the, the song, the trumpet warning call, is immediately cut off. And so there's always this muffled note at the end of this 700-year tradition of playing this trumpet call. And the people of Poland and Krakow uh, have never forgotten this heroic uh, moment in their, in their country's history. The last section of our text this evening, the last part of this text, I believe is Paul's version of this. It's an ancient warning call. It's an ancient trumpet call where we're being warned, uh, except for this warning has eternal consequences. This warning that Paul gives us uh, comes from the, the pen of Paul. It's for the church, and, uh, and it's been delivered for these countless years and generations to the church, and has brought deliverance to those that have received it. The church at Colossae, we don't have time to unpack all of the context here, but they were under attack uh, from cultural enemies, different things that were coming at them. And the church today is still surrounded by sophisticated, deadly foes. And so let's hear this heroic warning call from Paul. Uh, three specific warnings that Paul gives us, I think, here that steal our freedom in Christ, steal our freedom as believers. Number one, beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to um, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There were those in Colossae in, in Paul's day that came in after he proclaimed the gospel to them and were teaching them um, that the way to spiritual fullness was to return to the dietary laws or the calendar laws of Judaism. That if they would just recognize these Old Testament laws and abide by them, they would be clean. And if they didn't, they would be unclean. And Paul has clearly taught that when Christ came, he fulfilled the requirements of the law. He's taught them the gospel, that Christ's death on the cross is the way that we're made clean. It's no longer by these, um, these, these dietary or calendar laws that the, the people of Israel given in the Old Testament. And so, in actuality, these false teachers were imposing laws uh, that were not laws. They were imposing rules that had no actual authority. We have a word for this. It's legalism. If we're careful, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing today. In our church and in our world, maybe not with Jewish diets or with Jewish religious festivals, but with our own preferences, with our own convictions. And this is what Paul's warning us about. He's saying there's complete freedom in Christ, that you have been saved, you have been bought by the blood of Christ, and we need to avoid this temptation to delve into sinful legalism. And there's consequences of it. It steals your joy. It, 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 it uh, inflates your self-righteousness to think that, that I'm abiding by these laws, so you must have to as well. And if you're not, then you're not as good as me. You're not doing it as well as me. It muddies the clear communication of God's grace. When we hold up these these, these laws and rules, whatever they may be, our own convictions that are not clearly given to us in God's word, it muddies the grace of God. That that's the way in which we're saved. It tarnishes our witness in the world. I think, I think so many in our world have a distaste for the church, for organized religion, uh, because instead of preaching gospel, we've preached conduct management or behavior modification. 
And that's ultimately rooted in legalism. So beware of legalism. Number two, second warning Paul gives us, beware of mysticism. Beware of mysticism. Look at verse 16. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism or the worship of angels, going into detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says, beware of mysticism. And you're hearing that word, maybe wondering, well, Matt, what in the world is mysticism? What does Paul mean there? I think this illustration uh, from Coach Johnny Kerr with the Chicago Bulls um, may help. Uh, in an interview one time, Johnny Kerr, coach of the Chicago Bulls, said this. We'd lost seven in a row. I decided to give them a psychological pep talk before the game with the Celtics. I told Bob Boozer to go out and pretend that he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Jerry Sloan to pretend that he was the best defensive guard. I told Guy Rogers to pretend that he could run an offense better than any other guard. And I told Eric Mueller to pretend that he was the best at rebounding, shot blocking, and the best scoring center in the game. We lost by 17. I was pacing around the locker room trying afterwards to figure out what in the world I was going to say. When Mueller walked up and he put his arm around me and he said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. <laughs> this idea of pretending things into actuality. Now, these false teachers carried this same type of pretending attitude. I'll show you real quickly a few of the, the ways they did this. We're not going to spend a long time here. But they had a fake or a bogus, a, a fake sense of humility. Verse 18, we see this. They love to act humble, this false sense of, of, of humility, and say, hey, we're not, we're not good enough to approach God ourselves so if we begin going humbly to the angels, this is what this angel worship business is about. Now, if we go to the angels and, and we're in the correct spirit, well, then they'll give us access to God or they'll take our requests to him. We'll have, uh, and you hear a lot of the same idea coming from the Catholic Church today uh, and reasons why the folks would pray to Mary. Uh, well, she'll give us a good word in. She'll put a good word in for us. Paul, Paul says malarkey. That's crazy. You have access to God through our great high priest who is Christ. And so quit with this fake, this silly pretending that you're holy when you're not even connected to the head who is Christ. It's this false sense of humility. It's this, this, this pretending that they're doing. It's mysticism. It's, it's acting as if you're one thing, this super spiritual. Second, they claim that they had special revelations. You see it again in verse 18, that they were puffed up because of these special visions they were supposed to have. They were advertising this humility that, that, that they had. And, and well, we'll just approach the angels, but they're filled with conceit. Paul says, stop it already. It's all a vain sham. Uh, and this is, this is seen clearly in our day as well. People who want to show of humility, while on the inside they're full of pride. And we pretend as if we're serving others, but really we're making decisions that benefit us. Um, God, I think would, we would pray and do well tonight and say, God, would you search my heart and reveal any of this kind of attitude in my heart? That my motivations for serving, my motivations for, for, for working, my motivations for living and loving my wife and my kids and my family, that all of those would be pure, that, that, that my intentions there would be honest and good before you. But here's the real problem, though. It's the third thing that Paul points out. They claim to know Jesus, but they didn't. They claim to know Jesus, but they didn't. Look at verse 19. They pretend to be a part of the body, but they actually had no part of it. And they claimed to be a part of the body, but they didn't know the head, the one in whom we grow and have fullness. I think we do well tonight to pray, God, please help us to, to make our election sure that what we claim is actually happening in our lives. And finally, Paul gives us a final warning that guards us in our freedom in Christ. 
his final exhortation and warning in this part of the chapter that guards our freedom. Warning number three, beware of aestheticism. Beware of aestheticism. Look at verse 20. If Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to the human precepts, precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity of the body, body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, beware of aestheticism. What in the world is that? What is this big word, aestheticism? Well, church history is full of examples of, of Christians, and I think probably well-meaning, God-honoring believers, Christians that would reject or give up things, good things, in a pursuit of God. And here's the kicker. Here's what, and I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong to fast or to give up things, give up even things that are not sinful things so that you can focus on the Lord. And even Paul says, right, that, that he would love for you to be single, but if you can't, don't be. Um, to be like he is. Here's the kicker. When you're doing those things and you're sacrificing those things and giving up those things, and that in itself becomes an idol in your life, an act of worship that's taking your heart away from, your eyes away from God himself. You see uh, priests and monks throughout church history that gave up marriage or sex or parenthood or the enjoyment of God's creation or foods or entertainment or even the rejection of self, self-mutilation. All of these things, Paul is saying, this self-made religion, these things that probably started out as, as good convictions, as coming from an honest place, as coming from a good place, now they've become this, this false religion in your life, this thing that's an idol for you. And it robs Christ of the glory that he's due. It robs you of the freedom that you should have in Christ. And Paul is sort of making fun of them. You see it in verse 21. You say, death to those tastes, death to those touches, death to those practices. But, but Paul, I say, don't you know that if you've died with Christ, if you've died with Christ, then why do you live as if these things are still alive to you? Why do these things still have a bearing on your life? They're dead. They're dead to you. Remember, you died in Christ. Why do you still submit to those regulations? Why do you still allow these stipulations to, to have consequences on your life? Man-made practices to, to have weight in your life. Christ has accomplished your salvation. Don't think you're going to add one thing to it, Paul says. Don't think that, that any of these things in themselves are going to add to your salvation by you trusting in this ability to starve yourself or to deny yourself certain things. God made you or made those things for you to enjoy so let me try to put this all in perspective for us, try to tie it all back together for us and put a bow on it this evening. The reality, verse 9 and 10, going back up to where we started, the reality in verse 9 and 10 that in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That in him we've been made full, we've been made complete, our needs have been satisfied, our desires, our longings are satisfied. In Christ we have fullness because he is fully God. But we lose those benefits very easily when we fall to legalism, self-righteousness, joylessness, judgmentalism as a result of legalism. We lose that fullness, that joy, that, that completeness in Christ if we fall to mysticism, being proud, elitists. We lose those, we forfeit those things if we fall to aestheticism, thinking that we can make ourselves more holy when we're actually only feeding our flesh, feeding our pride. 
feeding our self-righteousness. So the answer to legalism is this realization of the grace of God, that he's done it for me. He's done it on my behalf. I couldn't accomplish it. The answer to mysticism is understanding how profoundly we're related to Christ, that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. The answer to aestheticism is realizing that we've been buried with Christ, that he is the one who's conquered. And that if we've been raised in Christ, then those things, those things of the world, we're dead to them. We have a new life that's in Christ. The answer to all three of these sin problems that Paul gives us, these things that would quench our freedom in Christ, the answer to all three of them is found at the foot of the cross. It drives us back to Calvary. That all of our theology, all of our preaching, all of our singing of hymns, all of our discipleship, all of our life experiences, all of our family relationships, all of that is meant to bring us right back to the foot of the cross. So that we can drink deeply and drink for a long time from the fountainhead that is Christ. He's pointing us back to this idea, again, found in chapter 1 with Michael last night. That he is the one in whom all things, he is preeminent. He is before all things. He's the head of all things. He is the one in whom all things were created. Why? Well, let me let Paul tell you. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. So if you get that part right, if you get verse 16 or verse 18 right there, that he's the head of the body, the church, these other things, mysticism, aestheticism, legalism, they don't even make sense. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the hope we have for fullness, for forgiveness. And let's, uh, let's pray tonight. We'll be dismissed.